No statute defines the standards governing challenges for cause. A representative case describing the judicially developed principles stated, we review the district court's refusal to strike a juror for cause for an abuse of discretion, keeping in mind that the district court is am the best position to observe the juror and to make a first-hand evaluation of his ability to be fair. The district court must grant a challenge for cause, however, if a prospective juror shows actual prejudice or bias. Actual bias can be shown either by the juror's own admission of bias or by proof of specific facts which show the juror has such a close connection to the facts at trial that bias is presumed. In our recent Vassy decision, we noted that courts have presumed bias m extraordinary situations where a prospective juror has had a direct financial interest in the trial's outcome. As examples of such extraordinary situations, we cited a case M which a prospective juror was a stockholder in or an employee of a corporation that was a party to the suit. In these situations, the relationship between the prospective juror and a party to the lawsuit pound points so shapely to bias M the particular juror that even the juror's own assertions of impartiality must be discounted M ruling on a challenge for cause. Getter v. Walmart Stores, Inc., 66 F 3D 1119, 1122, 10th CIR 1995. In the cited case, the prospective juror owned stock in defendant Walmart, which also employed his wife. The court held that in spite of the prospective juror's statement that he would base his decision on the law and the facts, it was an abuse of discretion to refuse to dismiss him for cause. Some other clear-cut examples of justified challenges for cause might be instances where a juror was related to a party or its lawyer or where the juror was currently involved in similar litigation. What if jurors conceal or lie on voir du? The first question is how a lawyer would find out. Jurors answer the voir du questions under oath, but there is no official investigation of their accuracy. Consequently, lawyers find out about anomalies mostly by chance. Once a lawyer determines that a juror was not candid during voir dire, w frat recourse does she have? Procedurally, the route is to move for a new trial, but when will one be granted? The leading case on that question, McDonough Power Equipment v. Greenwood, 464 U.S. 548, 1984, established the standard for challenging a verdict on the basis of inaccurate answers on voir dire. We hold that to obtain a new trial in such a situation, a party must first demonstrate that a juror failed to answer honestly a material question on voir dire, and then further show that a correct response would have provided a valid basis for a challenge for cause. I.D., at 555, emphasis added. Would you expect many verdicts to be upset under this standard? In addition to an unlimited number of challenges for cause, parties are also permitted a limited number of peremptory challenges, challenges the party need not justify in any way. In civil cases in federal court where six-person juries are the norm, parties are entitled to three peremptory challenges. 28 U.S.C. Section 1870. States establish various numbers of peremptory challenges. What justifies peremptory challenges? One view is that peremptories in effect allow the parties to choose their juries, thus giving any ensuing verdict greater legitimacy in their eyes. A softer justification is that peremptories allow parties to excuse a juror about whom they have a hunch that does not rise to the level of a challenge for cause, or whom they may have offended through vigorous but unsuccessful voir dire questioning. 
Still a third justification, if it is that, holds that peremptories allow lawyers to exercise various hunches about the characteristics of social groups, are blue-collar, rural whites of Northern European descent likely to be more defense-oriented than African-American Catholics? Are elderly accountants less generous than young race car drivers? And so on. Taken to the extreme, however, peremptories conflict with the ideas of the cross-sectional jury embodied in statutes like 28 U.S.C. Section 1861. If society believes that juries composed of many different viewpoints are desirable, does it make sense to allow parties to negate that goal through the use of peremptories? In recent decades the Supreme Court, as well as statutes or common law decisions in many states, has changed the law and the landscape regarding peremptory challenges. The U.S. Supreme Court has held that unaccountability in peremptories stops when race and gender enter the picture. In Batson v. Kentucky, 476 U.S. 79, 1986, the court in a criminal case held that the prosecution's systematic striking of black jurors without a justification based on nonracial factors violated the defendant's right to equal protection. Edmondson v. Leesville Concrete Co., 500 U.S. 614, 1991, extended Batson to civil cases, and subsequent cases have expanded the impermissible categories to include gender. J.E.B. v. Alabama, 511 U.S. 127, 1994. Notes and problems Batson, Edmondson, and J.E.B. open the door for one party to object to the other's use of peremptory challenges. How do such objections to challenges work? According to Batson, a party must first make an initial showing a prierna facie case that allows a court to infer a pattern based on race or gender, that showing then requires the party exercising the peremptory challenge to offer a satisfactory reason, one not based on race or gender. Suppose that Betty, a dismissed employee of a state university, sues, alleging wrongful discharge. After voir dire conies the time for the parties to exercise their peremptory challenges. A. Defendant the state university exercises its first peremptory challenge against a male African-American juror. Betty objects, citing Edmondson. Her objection will likely be overruled because there is, as of yet, no pattern. B. Defendant then challenges a second African-American juror. Betty renews her objection, now citing the pattern of peremptory challenges. Defendant may now be required to justify the challenges in non-racial terms. C. Notice that Betty can raise such a Batson challenge even if she does not belong to the group asserted to be the target of the peremptory challenges. Batson, Edmondson, and J.E.B. open a previously closed procedural door, permitting opponents to question the exercise of peremptories and forcing the parties to give nondiscriminatory justifications. But none of those cases devotes much consideration to what ought to count as an acceptable alternative reason for an apparently unacceptable use of a peremptory challenge. A. Imagine a Batson challenge to a peremptory challenge. Asked to justify what is an apparently race or gender-based pattern, the lawyer responds, I didn't like the way she looked at me during voir dire. If the court accepts that justification, then Edmondson and J.E.B. do little to cons T.R.A. in the civil jury selection process, b. Alternatively, suppose that counsel replies. Yes, it's true that both challenged jeers were men or African Americans, but my real reason was that they occupied managerial positions, and I am therefore concerned that they will not be sympathetic to my client's claim of wrongful discharge from her job. If courts refuse to accept that justification, they will effectively eliminate peremptory challenges. 
when voir do is brief, counsel will rarely have any but stereotypical information on which to base their challenges. Consider a case displaying the interaction of challenges for cause with a peremptory challenge. The underlying case was a Title VII action in which plaintiff alleged employment discrimination. During voir dire, one juror, Ms. Leiter, expressed skepticism about such suits. Leiter raised her hand and explained that she has been an owner of a couple of businesses and am currently an owner of a business, and I feel that as an employer and owner of a business that will definitely sway my judgment in this case. The judge asked her whether, if I instructed you as to what the law is that you would be able to apply the law recognizing that you are a business owner, to which she replied. I think my experience will cloud my judgment, but I can do my best. One of the party's lawyers then asked Leiter whether she was concerned that if somebody doesn't get them benefits sought from their employer they're going to sue you, and she answered, of course, asked then whether you believe that people file lawsuits just because they don't get something they want, she answered. I believe there are some people that do. Thompson v. Altamer and Gray, 248 F3D 621, 7th CIR. 2003. A. The plaintiff's lawyer moved to strike Ms. Leiter for cause, but the judge declined to do so. H.I.E. plaintiff's lawyer used all of her three peremptory challenges on jurors other than Leiter. The jury returned a defense verdict, b. Was it error not to remove Leiter for cause? The Seventh Circuit equivocated, holding not that Leiter should have been removed for cause but reversing because the trial judge did not get from Ms. Leiter a stronger assurance that she would decide Entier Ely on the basis of the evidence and the KRW, had the judge pushed Leiter and had she finally given unequivocal assurances that he deemed credible, his ruling could not be disturbed. But he failed to do that. The veneer contained 20 prospective jurors, and more than enough were left to make up a frill jury of eight when he refused to excuse her. A candid and thoughtful person, if one may judge from the transcript, Leiter would probably have made an excellent juror, in another case, c. The Seventh Circuit holds that the judge's failure to elicit from Leiter a statement that she could be open-minded was reversible error. What assumptions about human psychology underlie such a ruling? I. The most cynical view holds that people are incapable of overcoming biases but that it is for public relations purposes important to have them pledge allegiance to fairness. In such a view, the error would be one only of appearance, since the juror would behave the same regardless of what she said, e. A different view, supported by some empirical evidence, is that, when their possible biases are brought to their attention, people can to some extent overcome them, and that the public commitment to open-mindedness itself will reinforce this commitment. On this view, it is important that the judge elicit the public commitment, and the failure is significant. See, what will trial be about? The final pretrial conference and order at this point are examination of trial pivots from who, to, how, up to this point, the chapter has examined the law surrounding the people who will hear and decide a case if it goes to trial. We now turn to the rules that structure the trial, beginning with a process that one can with equal accuracy describe as the end of pleading or the start of trial, the final pretrial conference. One would expect that the question posed by this section's heading would long since have been answered. Isn't that what pleadings are for? And, if some of the allegations in those pleadings lacked factual or legal support, would they not have disappeared in motions on the pleadings and summary judgment? Perhaps. 
But because discovery will not resolve all factual questions, and because counsel may wish to leave open as late as possible alternative legal theories of then claims and defenses, there may still be some question about what issues trial will address. Modern civil litigation does not leave these questions open until the trial itself. One way in which the federal rules forces answers to these questions is by requiring, through Rule 16 e, a, final pretrial conference and order. Other conferences with the court, including the scheduling conference mandated by Rule 16 b, and optional pretrial conferences the judge may hold to discuss various matters, focus primarily on the pretrial stage of the case and, perhaps, efforts to settle or dismiss before trial. The final pretrial conference, in contrast, assumes a trial will occur, and soon. The final pretrial conference aims solely at clarifying the issues that trial will be about, to formulate a trial plan, as the rule puts it. As Rule 16 e states, the conference must be held as close to the start of the trial as is reasonable, and goes on to state that the court may modify the order issued after a final pretrial conference only to prevent manifest injustice, contrast that rather stem statement with the permissive standard for amending pleadings the court should freely give leave to amend a pleading when justice so requires. Rule 15 a. A final pretrial order, and an unsuccessful effort to convince the court to allow an amendment, is at stake in the next case. Moya 4 v. Phillips 778 F3D 849 10th CIR. 2015, Gorsuch, J. Sherman Slyatwell went to the hospital complaining of neck pain. Tests show Ed he probably had throat cancer. It was treatable but required immediate attention. Thanks to a variety of bureaucratic blunders the news never made it to him. Instead, Mr. Slyatwell was sent home with a prescription for antibiotics. By the time he learned the truth a year later, it was too late. Eventually, his widowed wife pursued negligence claims against the doctors and hospital. Through 20 months of motions practice and discovery and all the way through their submissions for the final pretrial order the defendants maintained a unified front, denying any negligence by anyone. Then, two weeks before trial, some of the defendants settled. Dr. Kenneth Phillips wasn't one of those. Left to stand trial and with just days before jury selection, he sought permission to amend the pretrial order so he could revamp his trial strategy. Now he wanted to pursue a defense pinning the blame on the absent settling defendants, arguing that they were indeed negligent and that they, not he, should be held responsible for any damages. Dr. Phillips's motion to amend the final pretrial order sought permission to introduce new jury instructions, exhibits, and witnesses aimed at advancing this new defense. But the district court denied the motion and at the trial's end the jury found him liable for damages of a little over $1 million. Dr. Phillips now asks us to overturn the judgment, contending that the district court's refusal to amend the final pretrial order and allow his new defense amounts to reversible error. Final pretrial orders seek to formulate a trial plan. Fed, R. Civ. P. 16, E. In their complaints and answers lawyers and parties today often list every alternative and contradictory claim or defense known to the law, during discovery they sometimes depose every potential witness still breathing and collect every bit and bite of evidence technology, time, and money will allow. Final pretrial orders seek to tame such exuberant modern pretrial practices and focus the mind on the impending reality of trial. 
The casual pleading and discovery indulged by the courts under the federal rules, dot has quite naturally led to, some might say required, more and more emphasis on pre-trial hearings and statements to define the issues for trial. Meadow Gold Prods. Co. v. Wright, 278F2D867, 868-69, D.C. CIR 1960. Leaving the reins so loose at the front end of the case requires some method of gathering them up as the end approaches. At trial you just can't argue every contradictory and mutually exclusive claim or defense you were able to conjure in your pleadings, juries would lose faith in your credibility. Neither can you present the millions of documents and the scores of witnesses you were able to dig up in discovery, no sensible judge would tolerate it. Final pretrial orders encourage both sides to edit their scripts, peel away any pleading and discovery bluster, and disclose something approximating their real trial intentions to opposing counsel and the court. Toward those ends, the parties are often asked, as they were in this case, to specify the witnesses and exhibits, supply the proposed jury instructions, and identify the claims and defenses they actually intend to introduce at trial. While pretrial orders entered earlier in the life of a case often deal with interstitial questions like discovery staging and motions practice and are relatively easy to amend as a result, a final pretrial order focused on formulating a plan for an impending trial may be amended only to prevent manifest injustice, Fed. R. Civ. P. 16. E. Even that standard isn't meant to preclude any flexibility, trials are high human dramas, surprises always emerge, and no judge worth his salt can forget or fail to sympathize with the challenges the trial lawyer confronts. For all our extensive pretrial procedures, even the most meticulous trial plan today probably remains no more reliable a guide than the script in a high school play, provisional at best and with surprising deviations guaranteed. At the same time, the standard for modifying a final pretrial order is as high as it is to ensure everyone involved has sufficient incentive to fulfill the order's dual purposes of encouraging self-editing and providing reasonably fair disclosure to the court and opposing parties alike of their real trial intentions. This court will review a district court's decision to amend or not to amend a pretrial order only for abuse of discretion. We see nothing like that here. Dr. Phillips says that he was surprised when his co-defendants left him to stand trial and that the court was insufficiently sympathetic to his desire to revamp his trial strategy in light of the last-minute settlement. But can a partial settlement really come as a surprise in an age when virtually all cases settle in part or in whole, many on the eve of trial? Especially in multi-party litigation, where an incentive exists to break ranks, settle relatively cheaply, and leave others on the hook before the jury? The truth is, what happened in this case was hardly unforeseeable. Like many before him in multi-defendant cases, Dr. Phillips initially saw profit in presenting a united front with his co-defendants only to regret the decision later. United front defenses often present a tempting choice at the outset of multi-party cases and through discovery. Parties can pool their resources and efforts in joint defense arrangements. Besides, no one likes to throw overboard someone else in the same boat. But the complications associated with this strategic choice often come home to roost as trial nears. An attractive partial settlement may be dangled before one defendant and not others. The settling defendant may get a good deal, replenish an opponent's litigation coffers depleted through exhausting pretrial litigation, and leave others exposed at trial for the bulk of the plaintiff's damages. 
remaining defendants can be left wishing for a defense or evidence or witnesses foregone. If a remaining defendant's attorney counted on a colleague working for a settling party to do the heavy lifting at trial he may feel flat-footed when it comes to examining witnesses and arguing motions. Even if all the defendants do go to trial, failing to obtain experts and gather evidence to show contributory negligence by co-defendants can exact its toll and lead to regret. Multi-party litigation presents a variety of collective action problems and other strategic pitfalls and those Dr. Phillips encountered here are well known, not the stuff of surprise. It's hard, as well, to ignore the prejudice the other side can experience in these circumstances. Dr. Phillips effectively sought to force the plaintiff to prepare for an entirely different trial on a few days' notice. For the better part of two years the defendants presented a united front. Even in their final pretrial order submissions they didn't designate experts to suggest one or another of the co-defendants acted unprofessionally. They didn't submit documents to prove such a claim. They didn't propose jury instructions asking that someone else be held accountable. The closest they came to suggesting contributory negligence was to prepare boilerplate blaming unspecified others for Mr. Shatwell's injuries. Beyond that, through the long months of discovery and into their final Rule 16 e submissions, nothing. In these circumstances, the plaintiff and her lawyers had some reasonable expectations about what trial would look like and the sort of evidence they would, and would not, need. They knew they'd need to prove negligence by the defendants who chose to go to trial but they wouldn't have to worry about finger-pointing between defendants, trial would present one set of challenges but not another. It may be that the district court could have allowed Dr. Phillips to rejigger his defense at the last minute and afforded the plaintiff more time to prepare for it. But we do not see why that outcome was mandatory. A district court does not abuse its discretion in holding a party to a long-scheduled trial and to the strategy he articulated though pleading and discovery and in the face of such obvious risks, especially when indulging an 11th-hour strategic shift would mean either imposing prejudice on the other side or inviting more delay. So beware, when a fellow litigant settles on the eve of trial you can't bank on the right to claim surprise and rewrite your case from top to bottom. Many of Dr. Phillips's remaining arguments echo his Rule 16 complaint and fail with it affirmed, what's new here? Modern procedure is flexible, but at some point the flexibility ends, the parties are locked into their respective stories. And they will be stopped at trial if they try to tell a story different from the one they have e-identified at the pretrial conference. This is so even if a party's companions have changed their story at the last minute by settling their claims. Size and decision rules still another way of preventing juries from reaching aberrant conclusions involves jury size and jury decision rules. The underlying ideas are that groups will render decisions that cancel out aberrant views of one or two members, and that requiring consensus assures full discussion of the evidence. At early common law a jury consisted of 12 persons, the verdict was required to be meanimous, and the verdict could be attacked only by a taint, a process in which a second jury, twice as large, considered charges that the first jury had been deliberately untruthful in its verdict. Those rules have changed, in the federal courts, in recent decades. In the widely criticized decision of Colgrave v. Batten, 413 U.S. 149, 1973, the Supreme Court constitutionalized six-person civil juries, which are now in widespread use in federal courts and in some states, what difference does it make? Fundamentally, a smaller jury is less average, less representative. 
smaller juries are e less likely to include any given point of view or social characteristic, race, political views, and so on. Just as a single individual is more likely to be eccentric than a large group, so smaller juries are more likely to render aberrant verdicts than are larger juries. In the federal system, unanimous verdicts in civil cases are still required unless the parties agree to accept a unanimous verdict. See Rule 48. Some states permit non-unanimous verdicts, usually allowing two or three opposing votes on a 12-person jury. Again one can ask what difference it makes. Rules of unanimity will result in more hung juries a single holdout can block a verdict, requiring a retrial. Balanced against this loss of efficiency are some studies suggesting that groups where unanimity is required discuss the evidence with more intensity and in more detail than do groups where unanimity is not required. Notice that, combined, these changes in size and decision rules can magnify each other. Decreasing the size of the jury reduces the likelihood that any given social characteristic will be reflected in the jury's membership. Moreover, abolishing the meanimity requirement lessens the effect that social diversity will have on the jury's verdict. If jurors do not have to render a unanimous verdict, the majority can simply ignore the point of view of one or two individuals. If the prosedmies described in the preceding sections work as planned, the litigants will face a judge and a jury who can approach the case without bias. But even an unbiased fact-finder can go wrong. The system therefore worries about two problems, juries reaching verdicts unsustainable in logic, and, conversely, judges improperly seizing control of litigation from juries. The next two sections examine the prosedmies and doctrines designed to prevent either of these from happening. At the outset, it's worth noting that judges and juries appear to agree with each other in the very great majority of cases, so the cases and principles examined here apply in the cases where judge and jury disagree. Who then prevails, and how? Several circumstances make it difficult to police the boundary between these shared responsibilities. First, in modern civil procedure only closely balanced cases will come to trial. Summary judgment will have weeded out most of the rest. Accordingly, every case should be a close one. Second, we have aspirations for the jury beyond simple fact-finding, although finding facts in the midst of conflict and perjury is hardly simple. The jury also serves as the voice of the community, tempering and making acceptable applications of law that might otherwise be resented or resisted. Finally, it is a temporary, lay, and democratic institution that stands at the core of a permanent, professional, and elite institution, the judiciary. The two latter roles conflict at times with fact-finding, at least if that task is understood in a limited way. To ask juries to decide cases, then, is to pen at them, or even to require them, to do something more than find facts. If one accepts these propositions, the task of procedure becomes more difficult. The litigation system is dedicated to rationality. It is also, however, committed to a model of fact-finding that blends rationality with other goals. How does one frame procedural rules that give juries sufficient leeway to perform the tasks we have set for them without irreparably compromising the rationality of verdicts? E. Judges controlling juries, the directed verdict suppose that, in spite of carefully conducted voir dire and perfect instructions on the law, a jury uncontaminated by outside influences reaches, unanimously, an insupportable conclusion. In a negligence case, the plaintiff presents no evidence that the defendant's negligence caused the accident. 
or in a case where the defense rests solely on the statute of limitations, the only evidence points to the critical events having occurred within the statute, in such cases the opposing party can ask the judge to grant judgment as a matter of law, read Rule 50 a. If the court grants such a motion, the jury will not receive the case or that part of it as to which the motion is granted. Historically, the grant of such a motion was called a directed verdict, the term used in the next case, and which many state courts and lawyers continue to use. We begin by glimpsing the directed verdict at work in a case that at first appears quaint, but that captures some very modern issues, early locomotive of San Pedro, Los Angeles and Salt Lake Railroad Reed v. San Pedro, Los Angeles and Salt Lake Railroad 39 Utah 617118 p. 1009-1911 This action was brought by respondent to recover damages for the killing of certain cattle by the trains of appellant it is alleged in the first cause of action that Appellant's Railroad passes through certain lands in Salt Lake County, Utah, owned and improved by private owners, that Appellant carelessly and negligently permitted the fence along its line of railroad where the same passes through the lands mentioned to be broken and in poor repair and become down so that cattle had an easy passage through the same, that Appellant carelessly and negligently left and permitted to remain open a gate along the line of said railway at said point and plaintiff respondent does not know, and therefore is unable to state, whether the fence was down or the gate left open, and because thereof a three-year-old heifer of the plaintiff strayed on the right-of-way of said defendant company, and defendant so carelessly and negligently operated its train that it ran on and over said heifer there was a verdict for plaintiff, and defendant appealed from the judgment entered on the verdict. McCarty, J. After stating the facts as above. It is contended on behalf of appellant that the evidence is insufficient to support the verdict because it fails to show where and under what circumstances the cattle sued for got upon the right of way. The evidence shows that the cow mentioned in the first cause of action was being pastured on land that was fenced, improved, and owned by a private party, and through which appellant's railroad was constructed and maintained, that respondent did not own the land, but was pasturing her stock thereon by permission of the owner at the time the cow was killed, that the fence enclosing appellant's right-of-way was down and out of repair about one mile west of the point where the cow was killed, that two gates opening into the right-of-way in the immediate vicinity of the place where the accident occurred, which were installed and maintained by appellant for the benefit and convenience of the owner of the land through which the railroad passes and upon which the cow was being pastured, had been left open almost continuously prior to the accident. It is not contended, nor even suggested, that these gates, Willich were in good condition, were used or left open by appellant. In fact, the evidence, what there is on this point, tends to show that the appellant was in no wise responsible for the gates being left open. Respondent contends that the judgment, insofar as it is based on the first cause of action, should be affirmed regardless of whether the cow got on the right of way through the broken fence or the open gate. In his brief counsel for respondent says, in the first cause of action the evidence showed the fence down and gate open, it is immaterial whether the heifer strayed on through an inviting open gate or an enticing open fence, either gives the verdict to the plaintiff, comp. 
Laws 1907, Section 456 by 1, provides, whenever such railroad company shall provide gates for private crossings far the convenience of the owner of the lands through which such railroad passes, such owner shall keep such gates closed at all times when not in actual use, and if such owner fail to keep such gates closed, and in consequence thereof his animal strays upon such railroad, and is killed or injured, such owner shall not be entitled to recover damages therefore. Under this statute, if the cow entered upon the right-of-way through the open gate, appellant cannot be held liable for her loss, there being no evidence of negligence on the part of trainmen at the time she was killed. There is no direct evidence as to where the cow got into the light-of-way. It is conceded, however, that she was killed in the immediate vicinity of the gate mentioned, and, as shown by the evidence, about one mile from the point where the fence enclosing the right-of-way was down and out of repair. The inference, therefore, is just as strong, if not stronger, that she entered upon the right-of-way through the open gate as it is that she entered through the fence at the point where it was out of repair. The plaintiff held the affirmative and the burden was on her to establish the liability of the defendant by a preponderance of the evidence. It is a familiar rule that where the undisputed evidence of the plaintiff, from which the existence of an essential fact is sought to be inferred, points with equal force to two things, one of which renders the defendant liable and the other not, the plaintiff must fail. So in this case, in order to entitle respondent to recover, it was essential for her to show by a preponderance of the evidence that the cow entered upon the right-of-way through the broken-down fence. This the respondent failed to do. We are of the opinion that the verdict rendered on the first cause of action is not supported by the evidence, and that the trial court should have directed a verdict for appellant on that cause of action in accordance with appellant's request. Notes and problems start with the substantive law of railroads and livestock in Utah at the start of the 20th century. A. If the animal reaches the tracks by coming through an open gate, who bears the loss? B. If the animal reaches the tracks by coming through a hole in the fence, who bears the loss? C. It may help in understanding the case to think back to Hawkins v. American Home Assurance Co., in chapter both that case and Reed deal with a similar question, what does it mean to have sufficient evidence rationally to decide in favor of one party? Mr. Hawkins might have died in an accident, Ms. Reed's heifer might have come through the broken fence, neither occurrence would have defied possibility. But the law in both cases stepped in to say, in effect, might have, is not good enough as a basis for a decision that will transfer wealth between the parties. Now consider those empowered by the legal system to decide how that law should apply to Janet Reed's heifer. A. Presiding over the trial was the judge, here George G. Armstrong, one of five judges sitting in Utah's trial court, the district court, for the third district, which includes Salt Lake County, where the accident occurred. Janet Reed had a lawyer, Alan Sanford, the railroad appears to have had two. Pennell Charrington and Dana T. Smith. The party's lawyers gathered evidence without the benefit of pretrial discovery, given the date of the case. They then presented that evidence, witnesses, and documents, in court. If Alan Sanford did a bad job of presenting the available evidence, Judge Armstrong would not save Ms. Reed from the consequences, b. Besides the parties, their lawyers, and Judge Armstrong, there was, we know from the opinion, a jury. In 1911, that J.R.U.Y. would have consisted of 12 men, registered voters living in Salt Lake County. We know nothing more of their identities. 
but one of the parties must have thought that these fellow citizens would provide a more sympathetic hearing of the case than would Judge Armstrong sitting alone, as they requested a jury trial. HIE jury found for Janet Reed. Although we know what evidence it had, we don't know how it reached its decision. As we will see, the law places substantial limits on judges' powers to inquire into a jury's decisional processes. See Peterson v. Wilson, at the end of this chapter, c. But the law also limits the jury's power in several ways. The railroad invoked one of those limits, at some point during the trial, it asked the judge to direct a verdict in its favor, to take from the jury the power to decide in Janet Reed's favor. Initially, Judge Armstrong refused that request, and his refusal was one of the grounds on which the railroad appealed, successfully. We will explore the reasons for taking Tin's case from the jury, and what remains of the J-Rise power given these limits, d. What if neither Part 7 had asked for a J-R-U-Y, or they had but this was not a case in which they were entitled to one? The case would then have been heard by Judge Armstrong alone, would that have made any difference? Probably not, at least if one understands the Reed Court as saying that there simply was no evidence from which a rational trier of fact could have inferred the railroad's negligence. The appellate court, however, would have had a different problem to deal with, at least if the case was decided pursuant to the federal rules. When a case is fried by a judge. Rule 52 1 requires that the court must find the facts specially and state its conclusions of law separately. So the court would have had to spell out the steps of inference by which it concluded that the railroad was negligent. Perhaps this exercise would have convinced the judge that one simply couldn't reach such a conclusion. Alternatively, it would have exposed the judge's reasoning, flaws and all, to the appellate court. We do not impose such a requirement of showing your work on juries, and to that extent we give them more slack than judges. If a jury reaches a defensible conclusion, appellate courts affirm without requiring that the jury actually reach its outcome by a defensible route, it is enough that it could reasonably have reached that conclusion. Rule 52 6 further provides that a finding of fact made by a trial judge can be set aside on appeal if it is clearly erroneous, giving the judge's factual conclusions almost the same insulation from review as a jury's verdict, but not quite. The Supreme Court has held that a judge's finding is clearly erroneous when, although there is evidence to support it the reviewing court on the entire evidence is left with the definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been committed. Anderson v. Bessemer City, Infra page 701, at 473. If it would be irrational speculation for a jury to find that the cow got on the track in a particular way, it would be clearly erroneous for the judge to make the same finding. Courts say that they grant judgments as a matter of law when the party with the burden of production has failed to carry that burden. This phrase captures an essential implication of party responsibility for proof. The system assigns to the parties, more precisely to one of the parties, the responsibility for investigating, discovering, marshalling evidence, and presenting that evidence to the friar of fact. If that Part 7 fails to canny the burden assigned, she loses the case. You have already seen the BM Den of Production operating in summary judgment. At the heart of Celotex COIP, v. Catret, Supra page 583, lies a hard truth, a party with the burden of production can lose even before trial if she fails to demonstrate, among the facts uncovered by investigation and discovery, sufficient evidence to allow a rational trier of fact to find in her favor, a. 
To understand why lawyers care about burdens of production, take an example from a simple auto accident case. Plaintiff has the burden of production on negligence. What does that mean in practice? First, the plaintiff has to decide how she is going to show defendant's negligence, will she base it on faulty maintenance, speeding, inebriation, failure to watch opposing traffic, driving in spite of a disabling medical condition, or some other breach of care? This initial decision will flow in large measure from plaintiff's sense of the facts, one would risk sanctions as well as failure on the merits if one based one's case on defendant's inebriation without having any factual foundation. B. Let's assume that plaintiff reports that defendant ran the red light. That would provide an adequate basis for pleading negligence while meeting the factual foundation requirements of Rule 11. Discovery might, of course, turn up other information, faulty maintenance of defendant's brakes, say, and it might cast doubt on the original theory, plaintiff thinks she saw defendant MN the light, but other, disinterested witnesses deny it. Whatever plaintiff's theory of negligence, she has the responsibility for gathering and presenting evidence on that theory. Let's assume that plaintiff thinks her strongest case is that defendant ran the light STOIY. To canny her burden of production on the question of whether the defendant ran the red fight, it is up to plaintiff to find the witnesses, interview or depose them, get their affidavits, to avoid summary judgment, make sure they come to court on the day of trial, and conduct the direct examination in a way that makes their statements admissible. If the plaintiff fails in any of these steps, she loses, even though, as a matter of historical fact, the defendant did ran the red light. The plaintiff loses because she has failed to satisfy the burden of production, of coming forward with evidence from which a rational trier of fact could conclude some proposition of material fact. Notice that in our red light hypothetical case, plaintiff has the burden of proving negligence. But defendant will have the responsibility, let's not call it a burden, lest we confuse ourselves hopelessly, of making the motion that tests whether plaintiff has earned that burden. A. At the pretrial stage, Leo would defendant challenge plaintiff's ability to satisfy the burden of production? See pages 582-98, b. At trial, how would defendant raise the challenge? c. What if plaintiff's evidence, in the words of Rule 50 a 1, would not give a reasonable jury? A legally sufficient evidentiary basis to find for plaintiff, but defendant fails to make the appropriate motion? i. Can the court just enter judgment on its own motion? Not according to Rule 50 a, e. But neither does the rule forbid a judge from holding a sidebar conference at which she says something like, at this time, counsel, I would be happy to entertain any relevant pre-verdict motions, counsel who do not respond to this hint deserve to lose both the case and the ensuing malpractice suit. Different parties may have the burden of production on different issues. For example, in a negligence case, the plaintiff will have the burden of production on the defendant's negligence. By contrast, if the defendant pleads the statute of limitations as a defense, the defendant will have the burden of producing facts to support that defense. Suppose that the plaintiff was exposed to some allegedly toxic chemicals, perhaps as a result of the defendant's negligence. The statute of limitations is one year, and under state law the statute runs from the time the plaintiff should reasonably have realized that she was injured. Plaintiff filed suit more than a year after exposure alleging injuries from the exposure. a. The plaintiff has the burden of producing evidence that the defendant negligently handled or used the chemicals in question and that the exposure caused the symptoms complained of. b. 
The defendant has the burden of producing evidence that the plaintiff should reasonably have realized that she was injured more than a year before the case was filed, c. Under those circumstances, both parties have the burden of producing evidence about material facts best known to the adversary, and therefore have the risk of losing if they fail to do so. Whether they can bear their burdens may depend on how well they have used discovery. What's new, here? To have the burden of production on a claim or defense means that you bear responsibility not only for deciding which story to try to tell in court, but for assembling all the bits and pieces of evidence that will make that story persuasive. Failing to gather even one critical piece of evidence could result in the collapse of your client's entire case. Procedural devices enforce that burden. Summary judgment is one, judgment as a matter of law is the other. Although Rule 50 and Rule 56 are worded differently, they have been interpreted to impose the same burden on the party with the burden of production at trial. With these foundational matters to one side, the great and difficult question in directing verdicts lies before us, when may a court interfere with the jury's fact-finding and law-applying role? In Reed, we saw a situation in which the court should have directed a verdict because there was no evidence from which a rational fact-finder could have found for Ms. Reed. But what if there's some evidence? Can a judge decide whom to believe? The well-established law in this area says that a judge may never make a credibility determination in granting judgment as a matter of law, credibility as a matter for the jury. Nor may a judge weigh the evidence, as opposed to finding whether there is any evidence from which the jury could find for the party against whom the motion is directed. In the next case, decide whether the U.S. Supreme Court is adhering to these standards or whether it's fudging them to dispose of a plaintiff's weak case. Pennsylvania Railroad v. Chamberlain 288 U.S. 333 Mr. Justice Sutherland delivered the opinion of the court. This is an action brought by respondent against petitioner to recover for the death of a brakeman, alleged to have been caused by petitioner's negligence. The complaint alleges that the deceased, at the time of the accident resulting in his death, was assisting in the yard work of breaking up and making up trains and in the classifying and assorting of cars operating in interstate commerce, that in pursuance of such work, while riding a cut of cars, other cars ridden by fellow employees were negligently caused to be brought into violent contact with those upon which deceased was riding, with the result that he was thrown therefrom to the railroad track and run over by a car or cars, inflicting injuries from which he died. At the conclusion of the evidence, the trial court directed the jury to find a verdict in favor of petitioner. Judgment upon a verdict so found was reversed by the Court of Appeals. Judge Swan dissenting. That part of the yard in which the accident occurred contained a lead track and a large number of switching tracks branching therefrom. The lead track crossed a hump, and the work of car distribution consisted of pushing a train of cars by means of a locomotive to the top of the hump, and then allowing the cars, in separate strings, to descend by gravity, under the control of hand brakes, to their respective destinations in the various branch tracks. Deceased had charge of a string of two gondola cars, which he was piloting to track 14. Immediately ahead of him was a string of seven cars, and behind him a string of nine cars, both also destined for track 14. Soon after the cars ridden by deceased had passed to track 14, his body was found on that track some distance beyond the switch. He had evidently fallen onto the track and been run over by a car or cars. The case for respondent rests wholly upon the claim that the fall of deceased was caused by a violent collision of the string of nine cars with the string ridden by deceased. 
three employees, riding the nine-car string, testified positively that no such collision occurred. They were corroborated by every other employee in a position to see, all testifying that there was no contact between the nine-car string and that of the deceased. The testimony of these witnesses, if believed, establishes beyond doubt that there was no collision bet in these two strings of cars, and that the nine-car string contributed in no way to the accident. The only witness who testified for the respondent was one Bainbridge, and it is upon his testimony alone that respondent's right to recover is sought to be upheld. His testimony is concisely stated, in its most favorable light for respondent, in the prevailing opinion below by Judge Learned Hand, as follow s, the plaintiff's only witness to the event, one Bainbridge, then employed by the road, stood close to the yardmaster's office, near the hump. He professed to have paid little attention to what went on, but he did see the deceased riding at the rear of his cars, whose speed when they passed him he took to be about 8 or 10 miles. Shortly thereafter a second string passed which was shunted into another track and this was followed by the nine, which, according to the plaintiff's theory, collided with the deceased's. After the nine cars had passed at a somewhat greater speed than the deceased's, Bainbridge paid no more attention to either string for a while, but looked again when the deceased, who was still standing in his place, had passed the switch and onto the assorting track where he was bound. At that time LIIS speed had been checked to about three miles, but the speed of the following nine cars had increased. They were just passing the switch, about four or five cars behind the deceased. Bainbridge looked away again and soon heard what he described as a loud crash, not however an unusual event in a switching yard. Apparently this did not cause him at once to turn, but he did so shortly thereafter, and saw the two strings together still moving, and the deceased no longer in sight. Later still his attention was attracted by shouts and he went to the spot and saw the deceased between the rails. Until he left to go to the accident, he had stood 50 feet to the north of the track where the accident happened, and about 900 feet from where the bodywash found. The court, although regarding Bainbridge's testimony as not only somewhat suspicious in itself, but its contradiction, so manifold as to leave little doubt, held, nevertheless, that the question was one of fact depending upon the credibility of the witnesses, and that it was for the jury to determine, as between the one witness and the many, where the truth lay. The dissenting opinion of Judge Swan proceeds upon the theory that Bainbridge did not testify that in fact a collision had taken place, but inferred it because he heard a crash, and because thereafter the two strings of cars appeared to him to be moving together. It is correctly pointed out in that opinion, however, that the crash might have come from elsewhere in the busy yard and that Bainbridge was in no position to see whether the two strings of cars were actually together, that Bainbridge repeatedly said he was paying no particular attention, and that his position was such, being 900 feet from the place where the body was found and less than 50 feet from the side of the track in question, that he necessarily saw the strings of cars at such an acute angle that it would be physically impossible even for an attentive observer observer to tell whether the forward end of the nine-car cut was actually in contact with the rear end of the two-car cut. The dissenting opinion further points out that all the witnesses who were in a position to see testified that there was no collision, that respondents' evidence was wholly circumstantial, and the inferences which might otherwise be drawn from it were shown to be utterly erroneous unless all of petitioner's witnesses were willful perjurers. This is not a case, the opinion proceeds, where direct testimony to an essential fact is contradicted by direct testimony of other witnesses, though even there it is conceded a directed verdict might be proper in some circumstances. 
Here, when all the testimony was in, the circumstantial evidence in support of negligence was thought by the trial judge to be so insubstantial and insufficient that it did not justify submission to the jury. We thus summarize and quote from the prevailing and dissenting opinions, because they present the divergent views to be considered in reaching a correct determination of the question involved. It, of course, is true, generally, that where there is a direct conflict of testimony upon a matter of fact, the question must be left to the jury to determine, without regard to the number of witnesses upon either side. But here there really is no conflict in the testimony as to the facts. The witnesses for petitioner flatly testified that there was no collision between the nine-car and the two-car strings. Bainbridge did not say there was such a collision. What he said was that he heard a loud crash, which did not cause him at once to turn, but that shortly thereafter he did turn and saw the two strings of cars moving together with the deceased no longer in sight, that there was nothing unusual about the crash of cars, it happened every day, that there was nothing about this crash to attract his attention except that it was extra loud, that he paid no attention to it, that it was not sufficient to attract his attention. The record shows that there was a continuous movement of cars over and down the hump, which were distributed among a large number of branch tracks within the yard, and that any two strings of these cars moving upon the same track might have come together and caused the crash which Bainbridge heard. There is no direct evidence that in fact the crash was occasioned by a collision of the two strings in question, and it is perfectly clear that no such fact was brought to Bainbridge's attention as a perception of the physical sense of sight or of hearing. At most there was an inference to that effect drawn from observed facts which gave equal support to the opposite inference that the crash was occasioned by the coming together of other strings of cars entirely away from the scene of the accident, or of the two-car string ridden by deceased and the seven-car string immediately ahead of it. We, therefore, have a case belonging to that class of cases where proven facts give equal support to each of two inconsistent inferences, in which event, neither of them being established, judgment, as a matter of law, must go against the party upon whom rests the necessity of sustaining one of these inferences as against the other, before he is entitled to recover. The rule is succinctly stated in Smith v. First National Bank in Westfield, 99 Mass. 605, 611-612, quoted in the Des Moines National Bank case United States F&G Co. v. Des Moines National Bank, 145 F. 273, 280, 8th CIR. 1906, there being several inferences deducible from the facts which appear, and equally consistent with all those facts, the plaintiff has not maintained the proposition upon which alone he would be entitled to recover. There is strictly no evidence to warrant a jury in finding that the loss was occasioned by negligence and not by theft. When the evidence tends equally to sustain either of two inconsistent propositions, neither of them can be said to have been established by legitimate proof. A verdict in favor of the party bound to maintain one of those propositions against the other is necessarily wrong. That Bainbridge concluded from what he himself observed that the crash was due to a collision between the two strings of cars in question is sufficiently indicated by his statements. But this, of course, proves nothing, since it is not allowable for a witness to resolve the doubt as to which of two equally justifiable inferences shall be adopted by drawing a conclusion, which, if accepted, will result in a purely gratuitous award in favor of the party who has failed to sustain the burden of proof cast upon him by the law. 
and the desired inference is precluded for the further reason that respondent's right of recovery depends upon the existence of a particular fact which must be inferred from proven facts, and this is not permissible in the face of the positive and otherwise uncontradicted testimony of unimpeached witnesses consistent with the facts actually proved, from which testimony it affirmatively appears that the fact sought to be inferred did not exist not only as Bainbridge's testimony considered as a whole suspicious, insubstantial and insufficient, but his statement that when he turned shortly after hearing the crash the two strings were moving together is simply incredible, if he meant thereby to be understood as saying that he saw the two in contact, and if he meant by the words, moving together, simply that they were moving at the same time in the same direction but not in contact, the statement becomes immaterial. As we have already seen he was paying slight and only occasional attention to what was going on. The cars were 800 or 900 feet from where he stood and moving almost directly away from him, his angle of vision being only 3 degrees 03 from a straight line. At that sharp angle and from that distance, near dusk of a misty evening, as the proof shows, the practical impossibility of the witness being able to see whether the front of the nine-car string was in contact with the back of the two-car string is apparent. And, certainly, in the light of these conditions, no verdict based upon a statement so unbelievable reasonably could be sustained as against the positive testimony to the contrary of unimpeached witnesses, all in a position to see, as this witness was not, the precise relation of the cars to one another. The fact that these witnesses were employees of the petitioner, under the circumstances here disclosed, does not impair this conclusion. Chesapeake and Ohio Rye, v. Martin, 283 U.S. 209, 216-220 Leaving out of consideration, then, the inference relied upon, the case for respondent is left without any substantial support in the evidence, and a verdict in her favor would have rested upon mere speculation and conjecture. This, of course, is inadmissible. The judgment of the Circuit Court of Appeals is reversed and that of the District Court is affirmed. Mr. Justice Stone and Mr. Justice Cardozo concur in the result. Notes and problems focus first on the procedural steps that frame the issue. a. A trial typically consists of the plaintiff's presentation of her case, the defendants of its case, closing arguments, and jury instructions. When in the course of this sequence did the court giant a directed verdict, which would today be called judgment as a matter of law? Locate the portion of Rule 50 that permits a party to make a motion at this point, b. Could the defendant have moved for a directed verdict earlier? When? c. Finally, read Rule 50, b, and apply it to the following variation on Chamberlain. Suppose that at the close of the evidence, defendant moves for judgment as a matter of law. The court denies the motion and submits the case to the jury, which returns a plaintiff's verdict. The defendant still firmly believes that there was no evidence from which a reasonable jury would have a legally sufficient evidentiary basis to find that the negligence of Chamberlain's fellow workers caused his death. What should the defendant do? See Rule 50b. Also review Norton v. Snapper Power Equipment, Supra page 45, in which just this procedure was used, d. Notice one egregious error the moving party might make in such a situation. Suppose that, in the heat of trial, defendant fails to make a Rule 50 motion before the case goes to the jury. Awaiting the verdict, defendant's counsel thinks he has now identified a fatal gap in plaintiff's case. May he make a post-verdict motion for judgment as a matter of law? No, the Supreme Court has held, and has said that holding has the force of the Seventh Amendment behind it. 
The reasoning is that at the time the amendment was adopted, courts permitted such post-verdict motion only as a renewal of a similar pre-verdict motion. Because the amendment forbids re-examining a verdict except as was permitted at common law, a post-verdict motion for judgment as a matter of law standing alone would be unconstitutional. Baltimore and Carolina Line v. Redman, 295 U.S. 654, 1935. Explaining the practical reasons for requiring a pre-verdict Rule 50 motion, in a case where defendant had thereby missed the chance to challenge a million-dollar punitive e-damage verdict, a court explained, the purpose of this rule is twofold. First it preserves the sufficiency of the evidence as a question of law, allowing the district court to review its initial denial of judgment as a matter of law instead of forcing it to engage in an impermissible re-examination of facts by the jury. Second, it calls to the court's and the party's attention any alleged deficiencies in the evidence at a tune when the opposing party still has an opportunity to correct them. Freund v. Nykomd Amersham. 2003 U.S. App. Lexis 21233, 16-17, 9th CIR. 2003. To understand the force of Chamberlain, consider a variation on the facts. A. Suppose at the time of the accident Bainbridge had not been standing several hundred feet away from the scene on a misty evening but instead had been standing ten feet away. He testifies that he clearly saw the collision, and that Chamberlain's death had been caused by the following cars overtaking his and crushing him between the cars. But suppose further that at the time of the accident a group of clergy had been taking a tour of the rail yards. These clergy also saw the accident clearly, and all testify under oath that the following string did not come near Chamberlain's and that the deceased fell onto the tracks when he waved to a friend. Would this testimony warrant granting a judgment for defendant? b. The commonly accepted answer to this question is no. This answer is a result of the court's insistence that in directing verdicts they not make judgments about the credibility of witnesses, even when the case seems strongly one-sided, c. Review the facts described by the court and construct the evidence presented into a pattern that makes it reasonable to infer that the fellow worker's negligence caused Chamberlain's death. In constructing such a story, consider a snippet from the opinion below, by Judge Learned Hand, it does not appear to us impossible, or indeed improbable, that one in Bainbridge's position could tell whether the two strings were together. The intervals between cars in a train are uniform, they may be detected by the straight sides. Certainly a gap of four or five car lengths, when the nine cars came to rest, would have been easily observable, and this was the story of the defendant. What Bainbridge saw, coupled with what he had heard, if uncontradicted, would be enough to support a finding that the nine cars had collided with the deceased's and thrown him off. There is no inherent impossibility in the story. Chamberlain v. Pennsylvania RR, 59 F 2D 986, 987, 2D CIR. 1932, D. Does the Supreme Court make a comparative assessment of witness credibility? As the Supreme Court describes the case, Bainbridge's testimony is suspicious because of his inadequate opportunity to observe, while the fellow worker's contrary testimony is taken at face value. Is there reason to suspect the worker's testimony? Is there reason to credit Bainbridge's inference that the two strings collided? Cases such as Chamberlain have been thought to raise two related issues. The first is the precise standard for taking the case from the jury, more particularly, which evidence should be considered by the court when deciding whether to do so. 
There is general agreement that the court should consider all evidence favorable to the non-moving party, all inferences from that evidence, and all undisputed evidence. But should the court also consider testimonial and disputed evidence in favor of the moving party? Closely related is the matter of evaluating the evidence. Many courts have stated that the basic test is whether reasonable persons could differ, if they could, the court should defer to the jury on the ground that its members are reasonable persons whose verdict represents one of several reasonable views. A leading case articulating the prevailing view is Boeing Co. v. Shipman, 411 F2D 365, 374-375, 5th CIR 1969, on motions for directed verdict and for judgment notwithstanding the verdict both now called judgment as a matter of law the court should consider all of the evidence, not just that evidence which supports the non-mover's case, but in the light and with all reasonable inferences most favorable to the party opposed to the motion. If the facts and inferences point so strongly and overwhelmingly in favor of one party that the court believes that reasonable men could not arrive at a contrary verdict, granting of the motions is proper. On the other hand, if there is substantial evidence opposed to the motions, that is, evidence of such quality and weight that reasonable and fair-minded men in the exercise of impartial judgment might reach different conclusions, the motions should be denied, and the case submitted to the jury. A mere scintilla of evidence is insufficient to present a question for the jury. The motions for judgment as a matter of law should not be decided by which side has the better of the case, nor should they be granted only when there is a complete absence of probative facts to support a jury verdict. There must be a conflict in substantial evidence to create a jury question. However, it is the function of the jury as the traditional finder of the facts, and not the court, to weigh conflicting evidence and inferences, and determine the credibility of witnesses. In Chamberlain, the court has to avoid questions of credibility because the jury is the undoubted arbiter of credibility. But we ask jurors to do much more than to decide who is telling the truth. We also give to the jury many questions that require them to apply general, open-ended standards to specific facts of the case. Was it negligent under these circumstances to be driving five miles faster than the speed limit? Was the behavior of one of the contracting parties unreasonable? To arrive at answers to such questions, juries may have to decide questions of fact. But even after doing so they must then apply the open texture of law to those facts. a. Because of this role, courts often give to juries cases where the facts are undisputed. A classic example is Railroad Co. v. Stout, 84 U.S. 657, 1873. A child was injured while playing on a railroad turntable located at the edge of a sparsely populated rural settlement. The turntable was not locked or fenced. No one contested any of these facts, the case went to the jury, which found negligence. Rejecting the railroad's contentions that the judge should have taken the case from the jury, the Supreme Court wrote, upon the facts proven in such cases, it is a matter of judgment and discretion, of sound inference, what is the deduction to be drawn from the undisputed facts. Certain facts we may suppose to be clearly established from which one sensible, impartial man would infer that proper care had not been used, and that negligence existed, another man equally sensible and equally impartial would infer that proper care had been used, and that there was no negligence. 
It is this class of cases and those akin to it that the law commits to the decision of a jury, twelve men of the average of the community, comprising men of education and men of little education, men of learning and men whose learning consists only in what they have themselves seen and heard, the merchant, the mechanic, the fanner, the laborer, these sit together, consult, apply their separate experience of the affairs of life to the facts proven, and draw a unanimous conclusion this average judgment thus given it is the great effort of the law to obtain it is a assumed that twelve men know more of the common affairs of HFE than does one man that they can draw wiser and safer conclusions from admitted facts thus occurring than can a single judge. Railroad Co. v. Stout, 84 U.S. at 663. Note that the assumption about the gender of jurors rests on premises since held to be unconstitutional. See Supra page 623, b. Given this practice, note that to describe the jury as merely a fact-finding body is deceptive. Isn't the jury's role in such cases very close to making law? I1 Implication Summary Judgment and Judgment as a Matter of Law After Cellotex Discussed in Chapter C, there should, in a world of perfect theory, never be an occasion for judgment as a matter of law. Put another way, in the same world of perfect theory, a judgment as a matter of law suggests that someone made a mistake in failing to move for or failing to grant summary judgment. Why? Celotex said that at the summary judgment stage, parties have the same burden of production they will have at trial. If parties have made good use of discovery, they will, by the time for summary judgment, have assembled all the evidence that they will use at trial. A summary judgment motion asks whether this evidence would be sufficient to allow a reasonable jury to find in favor of the party with the burden of production. If not, the court should grant summary judgment against that party. So, if summary judgment is doing its job, all the cases where judgment as a matter of law might be granted will be screened out at the summary judgment stage, never reaching trial. We do not live in that perfect world of theory. For example, witnesses can change their stories or be unavailable to testify at trial, thus depriving a party of some critical piece of evidence. When that happens, motions for judgment as a matter of law e as a backstop. F. Judges undoing verdicts, the new trial suppose two variations on the facts of Reed v. San Pedro, Los Angeles and Salt Lake RR assuming in both that the parties have made all appropriate pre-verdict motions, in the first variation, imagine that Janet Reed produced a witness, a neighbor from a nearby farm, who testified that the heifer strayed through a break in the fence recall that that would make the railroad's negligence the cause of death. Further suppose that the trial judge thought neighbor's testimony very weak, as Janet Reed's neighbor, she might be biased, moreover, she suffered from macular degeneration, making her ability to perceive the event suspect. Nevertheless, the jury returned a plaintiff's verdict, in the second variation, suppose that unbiased and clear-sighted but contradictory witnesses testify, one that the animal came through the open gate, the other that she was seen coming through the unmaintained fence, in this version, however, the judge realizes after the jury has returned a defendant's verdict that he failed to give a requested instruction on the substantive law, forgetting to make it clear that the railroad was liable if the animal came through the fence. As review, explain why, in the first case, the judge could not giant judgment as a matter of law for defendant, in the second case, the judge could not grant judgment as a matter of law for the plaintiff. The justifications for new trials in both cases the procedural remedy is not judgment as a matter of law, but an order for a new trial, governed by Rule 59. 
Rule 59 does not specify the grounds for which a new trial may be ordered, stating only that the court may do so for any reason for which a new trial has heretofore been granted in an action at law in federal court. Do you see the re-examination clause of the Seventh Amendment lurking behind that phrasing? A fairly well-developed body of common law suggests two principal reasons for granting new trials, one focusing on the procedure leading up to the verdict, the other on the correctness of the verdict itself, a. Flawed procedures new trials may be granted when the judge concludes that the process leading up to the verdict has been flawed, as in the second variation on read above. Other examples, the judge may conclude that a lawyer has made an impermissible argument to the jury, or, on reflection after the trial is over, the judge may conclude that she erred in admitting a piece of evidence or that she gave the jury erroneous instructions, or a judge may discover that a juror, although properly selected, misbehaved during the trial, perhaps by visiting the accident scene himself ordering a new trial gives the judge a chance to correct herself or otherwise fix the flawed process. Rule 59 D explicitly gives the judge power to order a new trial even if neither party so moves. B. Flawed verdicts even if the trial was perfect, the judge may conclude that the result of that trial, the verdict, is unjustifiable. Probably the most common ground for granting a new trial is that the verdict is against the great weight of the evidence. Understanding this idea requires a glance back at the judgment as a matter of law. Although both judgments as a matter of law and new trials result from verdicts with little or no evidentiary support, it is important to understand the difference between them. The consequences of each reflect their different rationales. In granting judgment as a matter of law a court is saying that the winner of the verdict had no evidentiary support for at least one essential element of his claim or defense. Judgment as a matter of law results in an immediate entry of judgment for the loser of the verdict by contrast, the grant of a new trial does not make a winner out of a loser, it merely begins the contest again. The standard is accordingly lower, as most courts would put it, a judge may grant a new trial when the verdict does against the great weight of the evidence, those same courts would agree, however, that in considering whether to grant a new trial the trial judge may not simply decide Leo she would have voted as a J.R.U.O.R. Where the standard lies between these two poles is harder to say. What's new, here? Rule 59 results in a do-over rather than a final judgment for one party. Such do-overs represent a solution to two quite different problems, in one form, the grant of a new trial is an almost but not quite version of judgment as a matter of law, one cannot say that there was no evidence for the prevailing side, but it was very thin. In its other form, the court grants a new trial because the jury didn't have the right information before it, and a new trial gives a new jury the chance to decide on the basis of the right evidence and law. Lind v. Shenley Industries 278 F2D79 3DCIR 1960 Lind, a sales manager for the defendant liquor company, alleged that it had promised him an increase in pay and a share of commissions but had then breached that promise. The alleged promises were oral. Lind and his then-secretary, Mrs. Kennan, testified to such promises. Shenley's agents denied making them. The jury found a contract, a damage award followed. Shenley moved both for judgment notwithstanding the verdict and, alternatively, for a new trial. The trial judge granted the J.N., O., V., and, in the alternative, a new trial see Rule 50, C., which authorizes such dual contingent rulings. The plaintiff appealed. Biggs, J.
The district court granted the alternative motion for a new trial because it found the jury's verdict 1. contrary to the weight of the evidence, 2. contrary to law and 3. a result of error in the admission of evidence the court first ruled on points 2 and 3 above, holding that it had been error to grant the J.N.O.V. for Shenley and a new trial on these grounds. The remaining basis for ordering a new trial is that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. It is frequently stated that a motion for a new trial on this ground ordinarily is non-reviewable because within the discretion of the trial court. But this discretion must still be exercised in accordance with ascertainable legal standards and if an appellate court is shown special or unusual circumstances which clearly indicate an abuse of discretion in that the trial court failed to apply correctly the proper standards, reversal is possible. Conceitedly appellate courts rarely find that the trial court abused its discretion. In Commercial Credit Corp. v. Pepper, Judge Bora stated, it is a principle well recognized in the federal courts that the granting or refusing of a new trial is a matter resting within the discretion of the trial court. The term, discretion, however, when invoked as a guide to judicial action, means a sound discretion, exercised with regard to what is right and in the interests of justice. And an appellate court is not bound to stay its hand and place its stamp of approval on a case when it feels that injustice may result. Quite to the contrary, it is definitely recognized in numerous decisions that an abuse of discretion is an exception to the rule that the granting or refusing of a new trial is not assignable as error. Thus an appellate court must still rule upon the propriety of an order for a new trial, even though the grounds for reversal are exceedingly narrow. But before any rational decision can be made, the reviewing court must know what standards the trial judge is bound to apply when ruling upon a motion for a new trial. These standards necessarily vary according to the grounds urged in support of the new trial. There is, however, little authority on what standards are to be applied in ruling on a motion for new trial on the grounds that the verdict is against the weight of the evidence beyond the simple maxim that the trial judge has wide discretion. The few available authorities are conflicting. Professor Moore concludes that while the trial judge has a responsibility for the result at least equal to that of the jury he should not set the verdict aside as contrary to the weight of the evidence and order a new trial simply because he would have come to a different conclusion if he were the trier of the facts. Professor Moore states in this connection, Shinke the credibility of witnesses is peculiarly for the jury it is an invasion of the jury's province to grant a new trial merely because the evidence was sharply in conflict. The trial judge, exercising a mature judicial discretion, should view the verdict in the overall setting of the trial, consider the character of the evidence and the complexity or simplicity of the legal principles which the jury was bound to apply to the facts, and abstain from interfering with the verdict unless it is quite clear that the jury has reached a seriously erroneous result. The judge's duty is essentially to see that there is no miscarriage of justice. If convinced that there has been then it is his duty to set the verdict aside, otherwise not. Professor Moore's views are logical and persuasive and buttressed by some decisional authority. What we have stated demonstrates that there is no consensus of opinion as to the exact standards to be used by a trial court in granting a new trial and that the criteria to be employed by an appellate tribunal charged with reviewing the trial judge's decision in this respect are equally indefinite. 
New trials granted because 1. A jury verdict as against the weight of the evidence may be sharply distinguished from 2. New trials ordered for other reasons, for example, evidence improperly admitted, prejudicial statements by counsel, an improper charge to the jury or newly discovered evidence. In the first instance given it is the jury itself which fails properly to perform the functions confided to it by law. In the latter instances something occurred in the course of the trial which resulted or which may have resulted in the jury receiving a distorted, incorrect, or an incomplete view of the operative facts, or some undesirable element obtruded itself into the proceedings creating a condition whereby the giving of a just verdict was rendered difficult or impossible. In the latter instances, too, supra, the trial court delivered the jury from a possibly erroneous verdict arising from circumstances over which the jury had no control. Under these conditions there is no usurpation by the court of the prime function of the jury as the trier of the facts and the trial judge necessarily must be allowed wide discretion in granting or refusing a new trial. But where no undesirable or pernicious element has occurred or been introduced into the trial and the trial judge nonetheless grants a new trial on the ground that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence, the trial judge in negating the jury's verdict has, to some extent at least, substituted his judgment of the facts and the credibility of the witnesses for that of the jury. Such an action affects a denigration of the jury system and to the extent that new trials are granted the judge takes over, if he does not usurp, the prime function of the jury as the trier of the facts. It then becomes the duty of the appellate tribunal to exercise a closer degree of scrutiny and supervision than is the case where a new trial is granted because of some undesirable or pernicious influence obtruding into the trial. Such a close scrutiny is required in order to protect the litigant's right to jury trial. Where a trial is long and complicated and deals with a subject matter not lying within the ordinary knowledge of jurors a verdict should be scrutinized more closely by the trial judge than is necessary where the litigation deals with material which is familiar and simple, the evidence relating to ordinary commercial practices. An example of subject matter unfamiliar to a layman would be a case requiring a jury to pass upon the nature of an alleged newly discovered organic compound in an infringement action. A prime example of subject matter lying well within the comprehension of jurors as presented by the circumstances at bar. The subject matter of the litigation before us is simple and easily comprehended by any intelligent layman. The jury's MAIU function was to determine the veracity of the witnesses, i.e., what testimony should be believed. If Lind's testimony and that of Mrs. Kennan, Kaufman's secretary, was deemed credible, Lind presented a convincing, indeed an overwhelming case. We must conclude that the jury did believe this testimony and that the court below substituted its judgment for that of the jury on this issue and thereby abused its legal discretion. The judgment of the court below will be reversed and the case will be remanded with the direction to the court below to reinstate the verdict and judgment in favor of Lind. Hasty, J., with whom K-A-L-O-D-N-E-R, J., joins dissenting. I think the majority make a serious mistake when they take the extraordinary additional step of reversing the alternative order of the trial judge, granting a new trial because he considered the verdict against the weight of the evidence under the traditional understanding of trial court's power to grant new trials the only function of a reviewing court, once the trial court has ordered a new trial, is to see whether there can have been any basis in reason for the trial judge's conclusion as to the weight of the evidence and the injustice of the verdict. The majority do not challenge this view, though they do not state explicitly what their understanding of our role is. 
The present record discloses a sharp conflict of testimony whether Kaufman, the Metropolitan Sales Manager, ever promised plaintiff, his subordinate district manager, a 1% commission on all gross sales of agents working under plaintiff. There are several remarkable aspects of this alleged promise which could reasonably have influenced the trial judge on this decisive issue. This commission would have more than quadrupled plaintiff's salary of $150 per week, making him much higher paid than his immediate superior, Kaufman, or any other company executive, except the president. No other sales manager or supervisor received any such commission at all. Moreover, after the alleged promise was made, month after month elapsed with no payment of the 1% commission or indication of any step to fulfill such an obligation. Yet plaintiff himself admits that he made you a formal demand for or inquiry about the large obligation for several years, and said nothing even informally about it to anyone for many months save for an occasional passing verbal inquiry said to have e been addressed to Kaufman. The trial court may have reasoned that the amount said to have been promised was so abnormally large and plaintiff's concern about non-payment so unnaturally small as to make it incredible that the promise ever was made. In addition, the very vagueness of the alleged promise and the absence of any mention of time in it may have increased the incredulity of the judge who heard the evidence. In such circumstances it was neither arbitrary nor an abuse of discretion for the trial judge to grant a new trial. Whether in the same circumstances some other trial judge or any member of this court would have let the verdict stand is beside the point. The majority thinks the trial judge usurped the function of the jury. I think it is we who are impinging upon the function and discretion of the trial judge IU a way that is serious, regrettable and without precedent in this court. Notes and problems Why did the trial court grant a new trial? Why did the appellate court reverse the grant of a new trial? The LMD opinion merges three issues, 1. What standard the trial court should apply in setting aside verdicts as being against the weight of the evidence, 2. How the trial court should apply that standard to the case at hand, and 3. What standard the appellate court should apply in reviewing new trial rulings. How does the Lind opinion resolve each of these issues? The Lind opinion also illustrates another part of the relation between directed verdicts and orders for new trials. Notice that defendant, having lost the V-erdict, made both motions, and the trial court granted both. A. Why? If the trial judge granted defendant A J N O V, that would end the case. Why bother also ruling on a motion for a new trial? Rule 50 C contains the answer, permitting a party moving for A J N O V to make and the court to rule on a conditional motion for a new trial. This alternative conies into play only if the judgment notwithstanding the verdict is later vacated or reversed. Lind illustrates the need for such a conditional ruling because the J, N, O, V, was in fact reversed. Without Rule 50, C, the defendant would have had to return to the trial court and, perhaps some years after the trial, make its motion for a new trial, long after perhaps critical details had faded from the trial judge's memory. Rule 50 C, permitting a losing party to make all its post-trial motions at once, allows the trial judge to rule on them with the case still fresh in mind and allows the appellate court to consider all of them at once, as it did in Lind, b. Notice that while the grant of a judgment as a matter of law constitutes a final judgment from which an appeal may be taken, the grant of a new trial, standing alone, does not create a final judgment, there will be no final judgment until after completion of the new trial. Accordingly, a party cannot appeal the grant of a new trial until after the second trial has occurred. 
you will see this procedural posture in Peterson, infra page 660. Suppose a jury returns a defense verdict. The judge, believing that the evidence strongly favored the plaintiff, orders a new trial. The second jury agrees with the first. Should the judge order still a third trial or simply conclude that he was wrong about the weight of the evidence? Because the new trial order is not appealable, the length of such a sequence is theoretically indefinite. Worry not, in practice, one of four things is likely to happen, the judge may finally get a jury that agrees with him, or the judge may decide that the juries were right and he was wrong. If neither of these occurs, the parties may well decide to settle rather than continue pouring money into repeated trials. Or, finally, defendant might eventually get an appellate court to grant a wit of mandamus see infra page 699 to put him out of his misery. Conditional new trials up to now, we have dealt with situations in which grants of new trials involved retrying the entire case. Consider a judge who concludes that the jury reasonably could have reached a verdict for the plaintiff but that its damage calculations are unreasonably low or high. May the judge grant a new trial limited to the issue of damages? The answer is yes, though the problems involved in reaching that answer are considerable. A. New trial limited to damages consider the logical underpinnings of such a writing. To be prepared to order a new trial limited to the issue of damages, the judge must be convinced that whatever influences led the jury astray on damages did not infect the judgment on liability as well. Take, for example, a verdict for the plaintiff combined with clearly insufficient damages. Can the judge be certain that the low award did not reflect considerable jury uncertainty that the plaintiff should recover at all, uncertainty that should have been reflected in a verdict for the defendant? The same doubt can exist in the case of clearly excessive damages, a jury passionately disposed toward the plaintiff regarding damages may have been so influenced on the issue of liability as well. Yet courts do order such partial new trials. Pingatory v. Montgomery Ward & Co., 419 F2D 1138 6th CIR. 1969, cert, denied, 398 U.S. 928 1970, serves as an example. A rat leapt on and bit plaintiff's knee while she was leaving a department store's premises. She developed complications leading to partial paralysis in an arm and leg. Testimony divided over whether the damage was attributable to the treatment for the bite a series of rabies inoculations, to conversion hysteria or psychosis, or to malingering. After a trial in which the plaintiff's attorney ranted and swore at the defendant corporation, the jury awarded plaintiff $126,000 in damages and $25,000 to her husband. The Court of Appeals reversed the judgment on account of the plaintiff's attorney's misbehavior. But, without explaining more than that there is substantial evidence to support the verdict of the jury on the question of liability, the court limited the new trial to damages. Why was liability so clear? Because it was obvious that the plaintiff should get something for being bitten by a rat? b. Remitter and additor instead of ordering a new trial on damages, could the pingatory court simply have reduced the amount of the damage award to one it thought reasonable? The answer is yes, under some circumstances. In such an action, known as remitter, the judge orders a new trial unless the plaintiff agrees to accept reduced damages. Its damage-increasing analog is additor. Both involve many of the problems inherent in the partial new trial as well as some special difficulties. If the jury renders a verdict that is arguably excessive, the trial judge faces several questions. 
These questions apply, in reverse, to Aditor, the less common of the two devices. Essentially, the questions are, first, when should one grant such a reduction or addition in damages? And, second, how does one calculate the amount? Consider the choice to which the grant of remitter puts a plaintiff. Assume a verdict of $150,000 for plaintiff that the court orders remitted to $75,000. If plaintiff refuses the remitter, the consequence is, of course, that the court will grant a new trial. The Supreme Court has held that a plaintiff must get a choice between a new trial and accepting reduced compensatory damages. Hetzel v. Prince William County, 523 U.S. 208, 1998. What about punitive damages? In several cases, see Chapter 5, the Supreme Court has held that due process requires judicial scrutiny and reduction of some punitive damage awards. A number of courts have found that this line of cases overcomes what would otherwise be a Seventh Amendment requirement that the court give plaintiff a choice between reduced punitive damages and a new trial, that plaintiff simply has to accept the reduced punitives. E.g., Johansson v. Combustion Engineering, Inc., 170 F3D 1320, 11th CIR 1999. Suppose the plaintiff accepts the remitter. May she condition her acceptance on a right to appeal? If not, may the plaintiff at least raise the matter if the defendant appeals the remitted verdict? The Supreme Court has blocked the attempt of lower courts to permit appeals from conditionally accepted verdicts. According to the court, the plaintiff had a choice, accept the remitter or prepare for a new trial. Donovan v. Penn Shipping Co., 429 U.S. 648, 649, 1977. Are remitter and additor constitutional? Some years ago, the Supreme Court held that Aditor violates the Seventh Amendment but that Remitter does not. The theory was that Remitter simply involves modifying a decision actually made by a jury, lopping off the excess, while Aditor involves making an award that no jury has ever made. See Dimmick v. SCLIIEDT, 293 U.S. 474, 483, 1935. Critics have suggested that this is a distinction without a meaning, but it is still the law in federal courts. Many states permit additor as well as remitter. G. The limits of judicial power, the re-examination clause and TLIE jury as a black box underscore what happens if the evidence admitted at trial provides some basis for finding for either side? Recall that the second half of the Seventh Amendment provides, no fact tried by a jury, shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States, than according to the rules of the common law. What does that mean? At a minimum, as we have already seen, it prevents a judge from overturning a JRUY verdict merely because she, as a juror, would have voted differently than the actual jury did. How much further does it restrict judicial control over jury verdicts? Suppose the jury is properly instructed in the law, proceeds to deliberate, and then returns a verdict. Suppose the losing party's attorney interviews all the jurors after the verdict. Jurors have no obligation to speak with the lawyers about the case, but lawyers are interested and jurors are frequently willing. From these interviews it appears that the jurors misunderstood the jury instructions. Suppose the jurors further say that they would have decided the case for the losing party if they had understood the instructions. Suppose the jurors go one step further, and each executes a sworn affidavit to that effect. Should the court grant judgment notwithstanding the verdict or giant a new trial to ensure a rational result under the applicable law? 
Peterson v. Wilson 141 F3D 573, 5th CIR. 1998, Wiener, J. I. Facts and Proceedings Peterson filed this suit in District Court under 42 U.S.C. Sections 1983 and 1988, as well as the 1st, 5th, and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution after he was fired as Grant Director at Texas Southern University, Sue. He claims that his property interest in his employment at SU was damaged or destroyed when it was arbitrarily and capriciously terminated, after five days of trial, conducted by the magistrate judge with the consent of the parties, the jury found for Peterson and awarded him $152,235 for lost pay and benefits and $35,000 for past and future mental anguish. Following the verdict, Wilson renewed his motion for J in 1, and supplemented it with his bare-bones alternative motion for a new trial. Some four months later, in January 1996, the district court granted the new trial, ostensibly in response to Wilson's motion, but in actuality on its own motion, the substantive language of the district court's order granting a new trial eschews any conclusion other than that the ruling was granted sua sponte, and that it was not granted for insufficiency of the evidence or because the jury verdict was against the great weight of the evidence, but rather for the following reason, the court concludes, based on the jury's verdict and comment comments the jurors made to the court after returning the verdict and outside the presence of the parties and their respective counsel, that the jury completely disregarded the court's instructions. Instead, it appears that the jury considered improper factors in reaching its verdict. Accordingly, the court deems it in the interest of justice to grant a new trial, emphasis added. The inference is inescapable that, to impeach the jury's verdict, the district court relied on information gleaned from the jurors themselves during the court's post-verdict, ex-party meeting with the jury. The court voided the verdict because, in the court's own words, the jury completely disregarded the court's instructions. Peterson timely filed a motion for reconsideration, which the district court did not grant. The case was re-tried in June 1996, and ended in a jury verdict in favor of Wilson, rejecting Peterson's claims. The jury, as the finder of facts and the maker of all credibility calls, reached its verdict in the first trial on the basis of the following record facts and inferences. Peterson is well-educated, well-trained, and widely experienced in his field of concentration, which is grant administration for institutions of higher education. When Peterson joined Sue in 1983 he assumed responsibility for administering grants, principally Title III grants. In addition, he was in charge of student affairs and was responsible for determining the residency status of foreign students. Peterson also supervised finances of the university and was in charge of institutional research. As Title III director, Peterson generally reported directly to the Vice President for Academic Affairs, first Clarkson, then Moore, and eventually, Wilson. The programs supported by Title III grants included faculty development, equipment purchases, and institutional research, providing millions of dollars annually for expenditures at SU. Without reiterating every detail of the relevant testimony and documents, it suffices that the evidence heard and obviously credited by the jury painted a picture of Peterson as a highly principled, apolitical, objective grant administrator who repeatedly refused to play ball with high-ranking SU administrators when they attempted to obtain expensive equipment for unauthorized personal use or sought to have unauthorized job positions created and funded with grant money for their special friends. 
The jury also heard an obviously credited testimony of both direct and implied threats by Wilson of adverse job actions, including firing, that Peterson was in jeopardy of incurring if, on reflection, he should fail or refuse to accede to requests that would require the unauthorized expenditure of grant funds. The termination letter of January 3, 1991, from Wilson to Peterson purported to outline nine items constituting cause for the firing, each of which was set forth in a report prepared and submitted on request by one Joyce Dayan with whom, it turned out, Wilson never conferred after receiving the report. Wilson testified that he accepted the report and made his judgment based on it. The jury heard testimony and saw documents which, if believed, as the jury apparently did, methodically refuted or explained away each of the nine purported causes for termination and revealed that Wilson did not even understand some of the items. The jury also heard evidence which, if credited, was sufficient to support a conclusion that the termination and its purported causes were pretext intended to cover Wilson's retaliation and desire to accomplish his actual or implied threats of getting rid of Peterson and replacing him with a grant director who would be more of a team player, i.e., would be more amenable to funding equipment purchases and job creations for friends of the higher-ups in the Sioux administration with grant money. That the jury unquestionably credited the testimony and documentation supporting Peterson's version of the facts and rejected Wilson's as confirmed by the yes answer to interrogatory no IA, do you find from a preponderance of the evidence that Dr. Bobby Wilson acted arbitrarily and capriciously in terminating Dr. Peterson? In the interrogatory that followed, the jury awarded Peterson $152,235 in lost pay and benefits, and $35,000 for past and future mental anguish. 2. Analysis We review the district court's grant of a new trial for abuse of discretion. It is a well-settled rule in this circuit that a verdict can be against the great weight of the evidence, and thus justify a new trial, even if there is substantial evidence to support it. What courts cannot do, and what the district court here never purported to do, is to grant a new trial, simply because the court would have come to a different conclusion than the jury did. The district court's succinct but cryptic, three-sentence explanation for granting a new trial demonstrates beyond question that, following the verdict, the court impermissibly met with and interrogated the jurors outside the presence of the parties and their respective counsel, and then proceeded to act in direct reliance on the jurors' comments as though they constituted newly discovered evidence of a kind that the court could properly consider. It was not. The conclusion is inescapable that, in impeaching the jury's verdict in this case, the district court relied on information obtained from the jurors in the court's post-verdict, ex-party meeting with them and that, by definition, any information thus obtained had to come directly from their internal deliberations quad jurors. Jury Impeachment Rule 606 b of the Federal Rules of Evidence FRE tightly controls impeachment of jury verdicts. This rule states, in pertinent part, upon an inquiry into the validity of a verdict, a juror may not testify as to any matter or statement occurring during the course of the jury's deliberations or to the effect of anything upon that or any other juror's mind or emotions as influencing the juror to assent to or dissent from the verdict, or concerning the juror's mental processes in connection therewith, except that a juror may testify on the question whether extraneous prejudicial information was improperly brought to the jury's attention or whether any out outside influence was improperly brought to the jury's attention or whether any outside influence was improperly brought to bear upon any juror. 
nor may a juror's affidavit or evidence of any statement by the juror concerning a matter about which the juror would be precluded from testifying be received for these purposes. The landmark Supreme Court ease on this issue is Tanner v. United States. After acknowledging that, by the beginning of this century, if not earlier, the near-universal and firmly established common law rule in the United States flatly prohibited the admission of juror testimony to impeach a jury verdict, the court observed that Federal Rule of Evidence 606 b is grounded in the common law rule against admission of jury testimony to impeach a verdict and the exception for juror testimony relating to extraneous influences. Following Tanner, and more closely on point, we held in Robles v. Exxon Corp. that receiving testimony from the jurors after they have returned their verdict, for the purpose of ascertaining that the jury misunderstood its instructions, is absolutely prohibited by F.R.E. 606 b. We underscored that holding by noting that the legislative history of the rule unmistakably points to the conclusion that Congress made a conscious decisio to disallow juror testimony as to the juror's mental processes or fidelity to the court's instructions. What is pellucid here, from the court's own unequivocal and unambiguous words, is that the juror's statements to the court related directly to matters that transpired in the jury room, that these matters comprehended the mental processes of the jurors in their deliberations on the case, and that the juror's statements formed the foundation of the court's impeachment of the verdict grounded in the jury's lack of fidelity to the court's instructions. We cannot conceive of O example more explicitly violative of Robles the Court of Appeals concluded that the district court did not find that the verdict was against the great weight of the evidence and that, even if it had, such a decision was contrary to the record. We are thus left with no choice but to reverse the district court's grant of a new trial, vacate the court's judgment rendered on the basis of the jury verdict in the second trial, and reinstate the results of the first trial. We therefore remand this case to the district court for entry of judgment in favor of Peterson and against Wilson in the principal sum of $187,235, $152,235 for lost pay and benefits and $35,000 for past and future mutual anguish, and for the assessment of appropriate interest and costs, including reasonable attorney's fees incurred by Peterson in both trials and on appeal. What's new, here? We ask judges to make findings of fact and law explaining how they arrived at a given result. Rule 52, the appellate court reversed the trial judge's new trial order precisely because it could trace his reasoning in making that order. Not only do we not require such findings from a jury, but we make it impossible to use evidence of jury deliberations to overturn a verdict that is otherwise reasonable. Instead, the appellate court reconstructs the path by which the jury could have reached its verdict. Notes and Problems. Peterson serves both as a review of the preceding chapter and as an embodiment of O important principle about jury integrity. Begin with reviewing some fundamental propositions, a. Explain WII why plaintiff could not appeal after the first trial. b. Explain why the result would have been different had the appellate court found, as defendant inged it to, that the trial court had granted a new trial because the first verdict was against the great wiglet of the evidence, c. Explain why the trial judge, after interviewing the jurors in the first trial and ascertaining that they had misunderstood the instructions, could not simply grant judgment as a matter of law, j, n, o, v, for defendant. 
The principle elaborated in Peterson has to do with the inviolability of jury deliberations, but also with the limits on the law's insistence on rationality, a, y, having learned through these interviews that the jury misunderstood instructions, could the trial court not grant a new trial on that basis? b. Distinguish Peterson from in Ray Beverly Hills Fire Litigation, Supra page 635. In the latter case, a juror performed home experiments on aluminum electrical wiring the dangerousness of which was a contested issue at trial and reported his findings to the other jurors. The appellate court held it an abuse of discretion not to grant a new trial. Why is it erroneous to grant a new trial when a juror misunderstands instructions and erroneous not to grant a new trial when a juror performs such experiments? Explain the distinction. Two bodies of law guard the integrity of jury verdicts as the winner of a case might put it, or as the loser would see it, the jury's ability to reach erroneous verdicts. A. The re-examination clause of the Seventh Amendment and similar state provisions provides substantive protections. A federal statute providing that whenever a judge disagreed with a verdict it could be overturned would be unconstitutional. B. Federal Rule of Evidence 606 and similar state provisions provides procedural protection by blocking evidence that might otherwise be used to challenge verdicts. What interests are served by prohibiting impeachment of a jury's verdict through post-verdict statements by the jurors regarding their deliberations? A. One can explain Federal Rule of Evidence 606 cynically, too many jury verdicts would fall if we delved into jury deliberations deeply. B. A different explanation is also possible. As you have already seen, if summary judgment and judgment as a matter of law are operating properly, only close cases, cases that could rationally be decided either way, will go to the jury. In such cases, any verdict should be sustainable. And, some would add, in such cases the soft variables that constitute the jury's sense of justice should come into play, even when those variables are hard to justify from the lofty plane of rationalism. By preventing too close an inquiry into jury's decision processes, one allows these considerations some free play, see, finally, one can justify the rule as a matter of court administration. Many people are reluctant to serve on juries, it disrupts lives and schedules and involves them in making difficult decisions. If one added to these inconveniences the possibility that one could be questioned by a disappointed loser about jury deliberations, it might become very difficult to fill jury boxes. Distinguish two issues that courts sometimes conflate, what constitutes jury conduct sufficiently improper to require a new trial, and when the court will hear evidence about jury conduct from a juror. Rule 606 governs the latter but has nothing to say about the former. A. To sharpen the distinction, imagine a case in which evidence of jury conduct came from two sources, a bailiff who overheard deliberations while stationed outside the room and a juror herself. Rule 606 bars testimony from the latter but not from the former. B. In fact, because juries deliberate in private, only in the very rare case will anyone other than a juror know what happened in the jury room. In contrast to information about jury deliberations, Rule 606 does allow a verdict to be impeached by evidence that there was some improper outside influence on the jury. A. Bribery obviously meets that criterion. So do threats to jurors by outsiders. As a review, explain why presenting evidence of a bribed jury does not constitute an unconstitutional re-examination of a jury verdict, b. What about evidence that a majority of jurors badgered a holdout juror until the holdout caved in and went along with the majority? 
Is there any basis for treating an outside threat to a juror differently from a threat by a fellow juror? A survey found the courts divided and could offer only the not very helpful observation that the cases seemed fact-specific. Impeachment a verdict by juror's evidence that he was coerced or intimidated by fellow juror, 39 ALR 4 800 1996. It may already have occurred to you that one might make jury verdicts less opaque by asking the jury to explain how it reached its verdict. There are in fact two ways to do just that, the special verdict and the general verdict with special interrogatories. See Rule 49. A. Which of these procedures was used in Peterson? b. In a special verdict the jury does not render a general verdict at all. Instead, it answers a series of questions about the evidence, was the defendant negligent? If so, did the defendant's negligence cause the plaintiff's injuries? If so, was the plaintiff also negligent? If so, did the plaintiff's negligence in some part contribute to his injuries? When the jury has answered all the questions, or all those that are necessary, it delivers them as the verdict. In a general verdict with interrogatories, the jury renders a general verdict but also answers particular questions, c. The concept of the special verdict and general verdict with interrogatories is simple, one gives the jurors a roadmap of the relevant legal issues, helping them to focus on each question as, and if, it becomes relevant. d. The practice surrounding these procedures has been much less happy. Jurors can become confused by the questions. The nightmare outcome, one too often realized in the cases, is that juries give inconsistent answers. In one notorious case, the jury said a, that the defendant was negligent but b that it was impossible for the defendant to have foreseen any danger from a particular condition on its property, that condition being the only way in which the jury could have found the defendant negligent. Gallic v. B&O Railroad, 372 U.S. 108, 1963. As a consequence of these problems, judges, in whose discretion the decision to allow a special verdict lies, often avoid them. Though trial by ordeal, drowning, binning, and the like, was abolished by the Lateran Council of 1215, lawyers tell us that even ordinary trials are ordeals of anxiety, weariness, and, for at least one side, disappointment. The one thing most civil trials are not as dramatic. Witnesses can change their stories and an occasional surprise will appear, but a well-prepared civil trial where both sides have made effective use of discovery will not look like a Perry Mason episode. Real trials differ from those in drama in another respect, in drama, the trial is the end of the road, the winners rejoice, the losers slink away in shame or defiance. In litigation, the trial is a rare event, but even when it occurs, it may not be the end, in part because trials are so rare, parties who have been unable to settle their differences beforehand may not do so just because a judge or jury has announced a winner. For some, an appeal lies ahead.